Luke chapter 10, you'll find it on page 734 in the Red Bibles in the pews. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among the wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, Peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we, will wipe, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me, but he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Gracious Father, thank you so much for giving us your word, and we 
pray now that by your spirit that uh, your word would uh, uh, lighten the darkness of our minds and our hearts, that we would uh, be uh, acknowledging who Jesus is and what your plan and purpose is for us and that we would do your will. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is so good when we see God at work changing someone's heart, especially when he's used us in the process. Think about those of us who are married with kids when we see our children actually really solidly believing in the Lord Jesus and taking a stand for the gospel. Or uh, that friend that we've been praying for, that friend at work or at school uh, who we've been praying for and now they're, uh, they're starting to ask questions about Jesus and uh, they're starting to even come to church and maybe even believing. It's absolutely wonderful. Uh, it was uh, encouraging for me yesterday reading uh, the story of uh, Bronson Blessington and to hear of uh, how God changed his heart and to know that uh, one of our own church members was, uh, was used by God to, to do that work. Absolutely wonderful. For the Christian, it is truly satisfying when we see God at work in the hearts of others. But sharing the gospel has its disappointments too. Uh, when people are, who we love are just simply not interested or when they, in rejecting the gospel, they, they even reject us personally. Uh, not because we've been obnoxious, uh, that would be fair enough, but because we've lovingly shared the good news about Jesus with them. It happens, doesn't it? Um, you know, the most recent kind of thing for myself is being unfriended from uh, Facebook, uh, you know, simply because I've, I lovingly and gently and graciously shared the gospel with a friend who, who asked me to do it, asked me to tell him about Jesus. It was important for the followers of Jesus to get a little bit of a taste of ministry, to, to get a bit of a taste of the, the joys of uh, evangelistic ministry whilst Jesus was still with them. And we saw that in chapter 9 of Luke's Gospel as we've been working through Luke when the uh, 12 disciples, the, known as the apostles, the disciples who were closest to Jesus got a taste of ministry, a taste of seeing God at work through them uh, when uh, Jesus sent them out on a mission trip. You might recall uh, that incident but Jesus didn't only have 12 disciples. He had many disciples. Many disciples who would benefit from that kind of experience. And so in Luke chapter 10, verse 1, which you might want to have open, from amongst the, the crowd of his disciples, he selected 72, 72 disciples to form a mission team. Now, we've... Uh, hosted mission teams here over the years, haven't we? Um, I think about 15 or so, actually. And uh, I worked out that typically the number of people in our mission team is 12. Now, there's nothing symbolic in that, I can assure you. It's just happened that way. Uh, we've had up to 25. But 72, that is, that's, that's a big team, isn't it? That's a huge team. 
And we know that uh, Jesus has now began his uh, journey from uh, Galilee uh, south towards Jerusalem. As Peter shared with us last week that he, he's now turned his face towards Jerusalem. And he sends this team ahead of him into every town that he is going to, to visit. So he, they go first and then he's going to follow through. 72 of them. Now, that's, that is, a, as I say, that's a big team. But in the long term, it's clearly not enough. Um, people speculate as to why Jesus picked 72 disciples. Uh, there's a little bit of discussion about whether the number there should be 70 or 72. That's all a bit technical. But uh, some people say that the 72 represents the 72 elders uh, whom Moses appointed uh, in order to help him to lead the nation of Israel. And so in the gospel, the good news of the kingdom going out through these 72, this is like the rule of of Jesus going out. Um, Others say, well, maybe it represents all all of the nations of the world because in Genesis chapter 10... In the table of nations, there are 70 nations. And so they say, well, maybe this represents, it's symbolic of the gospel going out into all of the world. Now, whatever the case, there is a ministry principle here. And that is, it's pretty simple, folks, that there is always a need for more people to be telling others about Jesus. Because in verse 2... The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. That is, how many people need to hear about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Everyone. Everybody. Uh, Billions of people. Six billion or whatever. Everybody in the world needs to hear the gospel of... Even Port Macquarie here. Port Macquarie is... There are 40,000 people plus who need to hear about Jesus. It's a big job and it can't be done just by a handful of people. You can't just say, well, the pastors and the the elders of the churches in Port Macquarie, they're going to do that. No, speaking to others about Jesus is something which we all need to do in whatever the circumstances that God has placed us in. Some of us will be able to speak up front. Some of us will be able to go into schools and teach in scripture classes. Some of us will be able to go into nursing homes and retirement villages. Some of us are pretty good at talking to our neighbours over the, over the back fence. <clears throat> there is not one of us who doesn't have some gift, some ability to be able to uh, share with people about Jesus. Uh, even... I recall one of our congregation members whose, whose body was very much largely not functioning. And he spent the latter part of his life just lying flat on his back uh, in a nursing home bed. And every time I'd go to visit him, there'd be a small pile of evangelistic tracts on his side table, which he would have there and just... In as best ways he could, he'd encourage the nurses, the staff, the people giving him his meals, just pick one of those up and have a read of it. Right? 
God gives us all opportunities to spread the word. He could reach people with the gospel who I just simply could not do so. Now, Jesus knew that soon the gospel message would need to be pushing out, pushing out from Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria and Galilee and, and into, all the, into all of the world. And so in verse 2, he tells these disciples in preparation for their mission, he, he says well, that they need to pray that God would, that the Lord of the harvest would raise up more workers for the harvest. And we should be praying too, shouldn't we? <clears throat> Certainly we should be praying always for more ministers and more missionaries to be raised up. But if the world, if even Port Macquarie is to be reached, we don't just need ministers and missionaries, we need for all of us to be praying that we would have, have a heart and that God would give us opportunities to speak to others about Jesus. Because it's not just a field. It's a harvest field. And there are people who are ripe and who will respond positively when we share the gospel with them. We don't know who those people are. God knows who they are. I am profoundly grateful that one night... Uh, 36 years ago that a complete stranger uh, cared enough to share the gospel of Jesus with me. I went to bed that night at peace with my God. He doesn't know that. We need to be sharing the gospel, uh, spreading the seed, knowing that there is a harvest. There are people out there who are ripe to turn to the Lord. But it doesn't always work out that way, is it? Sometimes the response is not always positive. And Jesus here warns these, the 72 that he's, he's actually sending them as lambs amongst wolves. Now, that's a vivid picture when you think about it. It's not like a picture of a, you know, of a lone wolf that's found its way into the sheep pen. This is a picture of, a, of, of an image of sheep who've been sent into the wolf pack. Someone's going to get hurt. They will be attacked. And when that happens, they must remember who it is who has sent them. And the one who has sent them is the one who is the Lord of the harvest. He is in control. Now, for the disciples, this was actually very, very helpful knowledge which would help them, not just on this mission trip, but into the future after the Lord Jesus had left them. Um, for example, in Acts chapter 5, some of the disciples had been arrested, they'd been imprisoned, and they'd been commanded by the authorities to stop telling people about Jesus. To which they responded, no, we will obey God, not men, irrespective. Now persecution is therefore expected and the task is urgent. 
In verse 4, Jesus instructs the 72, uh, telling them, well, look, don't take any money. Don't take a purse with you. Don't pay, take a bag, you know, packed with changes of clothes and everything that you needed and so on. Don't even take a spare pair of sandals. Don't, don't greet people on the road on your way. Now, <coughs> that, um, in that culture, that greeting a person on the road was more than just saying, g'day, how are you going, as you walk past. In the Middle Eastern culture in the first century, it was a whole lot more elaborate than, than that. And there is a principle here. This is not just practical advice about travelling light. It's, it's about the urgency of sharing the gospel. People are living and they are dying without Christ. And we've got the news that can save them from judgment and hell that follows. We must remember that. Because we can be distracted. We can be distracted by the things of the world. We can be distracted into living a lifestyle that is no, dis, not dissimilar to the life of the people around us. We can even get distracted into thinking that ministry is about having a big and exciting church. It's nice to have a big and exciting church, but no, ministry, the ministry of the gospel is about saving people from hell. Saving people. Because in Jesus and his gospel, the kingdom of God is near. And it comes in, when, when it says that the kingdom of God in, is, is near, for some people that means peace, for others that means judgment. We see this in verses 5 through to 16, where firstly Jesus talks about peace. Let me read from verse 5 onwards. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. Actually, the original is quite nice. It doesn't say a man of peace. It says a son of peace, which is a sort of a Jewish idiom, which is quite nice, I think. But if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking, whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. And when you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. It's a nice picture. Um, Jesus is saying if you, if you go to a place, if you go to a house, town, if you're received well then have no qualms about accepting that hospitality. Um, accept the, the food and the drink that they put in front of you without any sense of indebtedness for the food. And it may even be a hint here that he's saying don't even be too fussy about whether the food is kosher or not if you've gone into a house that's kind of Gentile influence because there's more important issues at stake here. Because... You can bless that household. You can bless your hosts. You can bless that town with, with true peace. Healing their sick and giving a reason for that. In verse 8, explaining to people that in the healings, the kingdom of God has come near. So the healings are just not for any other are just not only about healing sick people for any other reason than healing. 
It actually is a demonstration that the kingdom of God has come near and it is a foretaste of the ultimate healing that we all will receive uh, in God's kingdom. Now we can uh, bless our non-Christian friends in various ways, can't we? In all sorts of ways we can bless people just by being righteous towards them, by reflecting the Lord Jesus Christ towards them. And when we do bless our non-Christian friends in various ways, without being too pushy, we can let them know that, that it's because of God's love. Um, you know, for example, uh, uh, someone done us wrong and, and we for, forgave that person. And when the person spoke to us, he said, I really, I really appreciate the fact that you, uh, you, you accepted my apology and that you forgave me. And we're able to say, well, you know what? We've been forgiven as well <laughs> um, by God. So we, we just want to forgive you and uh, let's call it, you know, square. When we bless people in different ways, there's no reason why we can't say, well, you know what? It's just because we love you because God loves us. And then in that sense, we're actually saying that the kingdom of God uh, is near. The kingdom of God is near. And we're letting them know that. It's letting them know that in that peace and in that blessing that this is really about God's kingdom. But the judgment of God, the kingdom of God, is, is not just about peace, it's also about judgment. And in verses 10 through to 15, Jesus prepares the 72 disciples for the reality of rejection. We see, if we pick it up in verse 10, uh, where he says, But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. Now, wiping the dust off your feet, I guess we Australians have got uh, different gestures which we might use to express disapproval to someone. But this one's actually very profound because when, when Jewish people, when God's people were travelling outside of the bounds of Israel into Gentile nations, when they were returning, as they returned and as they stepped back inside Israel, before they would do that, they would wipe the dust off their feet because they would not want to bring the ground of gent Gentile ground into God's promised land. And so when the disciples in a, in a Jewish city are saying we're going to wipe the dust off our feet as we leave, what are they saying? They're saying we don't consider you to be, be, be part of God's kingdom. You're actually, you're actually like the Gentiles. You're not part of the promise. It is a mark of serious judgment. Now, the city of... Uh, so so the, the kingdom of God has come near, but for that town it's come near, not in peace, but in judgment because of their response. The flagship city for sin was Sodom. And in, uh, in Genesis chapter 18, the, the, the sin of Sodom was so abhorrent uh, 
that the Lord poured down. He rained down burning sulphur on the city, killing everyone except Lot and his daughters who escaped, although his wife didn't escape. Now that is how we know from Scripture that that is how God views the city of Sodom. But Jesus says that the day of judgment will be more bearable for Sodom than it will be for that town, those towns which reject the disciples of Jesus. That is a scary thought. That is a scary thought. Now these towns that he's referring to are the towns that were yet to hear the message. But then in verses 13 through to 15, Jesus reflects on those towns which had already heard the message. And it's very sad when Jesus says, woe unto you, I don't think that there's a, a tone of, um, of retaliation. I think it's a tone of profound, weep, uh, 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 profound sorrow. Uh, when Jesus wept over Jerusalem, uh, he was so sorrowful for Jerusalem. And here he compares Jewish cities with Gentile cities. If the miracles that had been performed in the Galilean cities of Chorazon and Bethsaida, if those miracles had been performed in the Gentile cities of Tyre and Sidon, which were in Phoenicia, modern-day Lebanon, then what does Jesus say? Well, he says that those Gentile cities, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. Whereas Chorazon and Bethsaida, Jewish cities, did not. The city of Capernaum, where we're told in Matthew chapter 4 that uh, Jesus, after he left Nazareth, made Capernaum his home base. So the people of the city of Capernaum had great opportunity to know Jesus, to hear Jesus, to see his mighty works and to believe in the Lord Jesus, and yet they rejected him. And so in verse 15, their future is, is also very bleak. Now, brothers and sisters, if we are people who tell others about Jesus, then we should expect some rejection. All who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will be persecuted. We ought to expect some rejection. And that's hard. That is really hard. But we, we should not take it personally. Because there is an underlying spiritual reality which we see Jesus talk about in verse 16 where he says that he who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. You see the connections there? You see the connections? To reject the messenger of Jesus is to reject Jesus. To reject Jesus is to reject God. You can't say, I believe in God, but I don't believe in Jesus. The Muslims and everyone else who says that they believe in God, but Jesus is not Lord, are wrong, are deceived. To reject the messenger of Jesus is to reject Jesus. To reject Jesus is to reject the one who has sent him, God the Father, 
So that when people reject the message of the gospel from our lips, it's not really about us. They might feel that it's about us. I don't like being unfriended from Facebook. Uh, It's sin. It's because they... It's Genesis chapter 3 being lived out present day. It's because they do not want God to rule their lives. They don't like that. So the 72 disciples um, embarked on their mission and we don't know very, we don't get a narrative account of everything that they did on the mission, but we do get uh, an account of the feedback session because when they reported back to Jesus, they're actually full of joy. Have a look at that, verse 17. Verse 17, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Isn't this wonderful? Why were they so joyful? They were, Jesus had warned them that people were going to reject them, but who is it who actually submitted to them? It's the demons. The demons of Satan. The demons of Satan have been submitting to the disciples. They've been driven out. And Jesus responds, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. There's a couple of ways that we could understand that. Some people say, well, maybe Jesus is really talking about the issue of not being proud here because... Maybe he's talking about that that event before history uh, when uh, Satan, the angel, fell from heaven. And Jesus is saying that uh, an angel had fallen from heaven, so don't be too proud about yourself. Maybe so. The other view, and this is where I lean, I guess, is that uh, what is happening here is that the kingdom of God is near in the person and the work of Jesus and in his message. And so what is happening to the kingdom of Satan? In the wilderness, Jesus resisted the temptations of Satan, the profound temptations of Satan, which if he had fallen to, would have taken him away from the cross. He rebuked Satan. And now he has given his disciples not only the power, but also the authority to demonstrate that the kingdom of Satan in the presence of the person and the messengers of the Lord Jesus Christ that the kingdom of Satan is now crumbling. It's falling apart. Now, there is, I believe, a symbolic language here when he says, I've given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and so on. I don't suggest that we go out looking for, for snakes and scorpions to trample on because snakes and scorpions in the Bible were the symbols. They were symbolic of Satan. God was working through these disciples in the overthrow of Satan. And how exciting is it? How exciting is it when we experience God working through us? When we experience someone actually being released from the captivity to sin and Satan 
and enter into the kingdom of light and God does so through people such as us. That's exciting, isn't it? That's thrilling. Sometimes, though, it's a, <clears throat> it's a bit of a fine line between praising God and thinking that we're pretty hot stuff. <laughs> uh, thinking that, uh, you know, we're pretty good. That it's, you know, look at, look at how many people I've saved. <laughs> I'll put another notch in my Bible. Well, Jesus has some sobering words for the mission team in verse 20. In verse 20, he says, However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Do you rejoice in that? Do you rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life? You know, the disciples were joyful that the demons submitted to them. But as we look at the rest of this passage in verses 21 to 24, it's now actually Jesus who's described as being joyful. He is full of joy. And in prayer, he now gives thanks to God the Father because of what the disciples have seen. Their eyes, he said, have been blessed. For God was pleased to reveal to them the greatest truth of history. The truth which in verse 21 has been hidden from the wise and the learned and revealed to little children. The truth which in verse 24 that the prophets of Israel and the great kings of Israel had longed to see but did not live long enough to see it. The great truth, friends, that Jesus is God's son and that in him that the kingdom of Satan is at an end. Finished. Gone. And that is a truth which is revealed in its completeness in the death and the resurrection of Jesus where Paul tells us in Colossians that on the cross, the power which Satan had over us, which, by the way, is the power which he had to take, him with, to take us with him to hell, is the, the power of the guilt of our sin. That's what takes us to hell with Satan, our, the guilt of our sin. And that power that he had has now been removed. So far as the east is from the west, that, far, that is how far that God has removed our sins from us because on the cross of Jesus, <clears throat> the guilt, the penalty and the power of sin was taken off us and was placed on him in our place instead of us. God has disarmed the powers and authorities through the work of Jesus on the cross. And so... Although we sometimes can feel like we're sheep amongst wolves, do you ever feel that way? Of course. Although we sometimes feel like sheep amongst wolves, we know that we can and we ought to share the gospel with confidence. With the confidence that God is at work he is the Lord of the harvest. He is the one who is bringing in the harvest. He is the one who has prepared the harvest. And it is he, he is the one who blesses eyes. 
He is the one who opens eyes. We go and share the word. We build relationships. We connect with people. We tell them about Jesus. We pray for people. And through the spoken word of the gospel, through people just just like us, through people just like Jack Begnall, others find peace, find God's peace and forgiveness and eternal hope. So we ought to be encouraged to be the workers for the harvest field. You know, they say, Jesus says to pray for more workers for the harvest field. They, don't, they say, don't they, be careful what you pray for <laughs> because it might be you. It should be you in whatever circumstance God has placed you. In the 16th century, Martin Luther wrote a hymn called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. We're not going to sing it. I just want to recount for you one of the verses which sums this all up and I think is a nice way to finish today. Where he says, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. We know his doom is sure. The word of God shall fill him. Let's pray. We pray, Lord of the harvest, that you would raise up more workers for the harvest field. We pray, Lord of the harvest, that you would open eyes and unplug ears that people would respond positively to the message of the gospel. We pray, Lord of the harvest, that you would use even us in whatever circumstances of life we find ourselves in to be agents of sharing your gospel message. We pray, Lord of the harvest, that when we are rejected, that we will know that it is you who sent us and that it is the Lord Jesus and yourself who is being rejected. Father, we just do pray that we would be people who faithfully do your will and that through us that the demons would submit, that people would be released from their slavery to sin, from condemnation, from the, the grip that Satan has over them and released into your kingdom, which is the kingdom that comes. It's a kingdom of peace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.